Hello, this is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day, and this is a podcast about what's in the air and up for discussion at the 8th Global Peter Drucker Forum. The forum takes place in Vienna in the middle of November. It's where hundreds of people gather every year to discuss the latest trends in companies, organizations, and society inspired by the great management thinker, the late Professor Peter Drucker. He was born in Vienna, and he went on having formative ideas about how society works into his 90s. He died in 2005. This year's theme is the Entrepreneurial Society. With me for this podcast is one of the forum's main speakers, Mariana Mazzucato from the University of Sussex, and she's got a complicated job title, Professor in the Economics of Innovation at the University's Science Policy Research Unit. Professor Masikatu made her name with a book she published three years ago called The Entrepreneurial State. It argued that, contrary to what I think many people think, governments play a big part in creating entrepreneurship. That's the gist of it, Mariana. Well, I would actually argue that many people do argue that government is important. That's not where the controversy is. It's the vocabulary, it's the words, it's the tone. Uh, that is used. So we talk about government being important as enabling, as de-risking, as creating background conditions, whereas what I talk about in the book is government as lead investor, lead risk taker, entrepreneur. Yes, and uh, this in an era when everybody thought market forces prevailed and government should step aside. That was the mood into which you injected this book. Yes, and in fact I begin with the point that actually markets are outcomes their outcomes of interactions between different types of actors, public actors, private actors, third sector actors, civil society as well. And whereas we know quite a bit about what business does, we haven't really thought about, nor have we theorized, the role of the public sector. And hence we get really bad policies. And this book has had enormous impact, hasn't it? You're on call, aren't you? (laughs) Yes, um, I think it came out at the right time because lots of the austerity that occurred after the financial crisis actually occurred in the name of innovation, in the name of dynamism. So my question was, well, what do we actually know about where innovation has come from and what was the role of the state? Now, at this Drucker Forum, you're going to be taking part in a discussion on the state as enabler, investor, innovator. So inject your insights into that theme. Well, I want to talk about the role of the state as actively creating and shaping markets, not only fixing markets through what economists call market failure theory, if you want. And so what I've done in the book, and I'll talk about in the forum, is if we actually look at the few places in the world that have achieved smart innovation-led growth, what the state had to do was much, much more than fixing markets. It had to invest along the whole innovation chain, not just science, lots of applied research, and even providing the high-risk patient finance to the few companies that were interested. Now, we know about the United States, the secret source of innovation in the United States. The Internet came out of the Army commissioning the universities, commissioning companies. The National Institutes of Health do lots of long-term, very deep research work that no pharmaceutical company could afford, don't they? We know about that, but where else does this happen? Well, first of all, we might know about it, but sometimes the numbers people don't know about. So the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, spend over $30 billion a year, even after, you know, the financial crisis with all the sequestration. Um, And that's in, again, distributed across the innovation chain. But what other sources? For example, we have InQtel, one of the biggest venture capital funds in the 
world run by the CIA, <laughs> which should make people a bit scared. Uh, by the way, the CIA was also behind the touchscreen display, which we all have on our iPhones and our iPads, but also lots of the technology behind the companies, if you want, that people like Elon Musk have you know, come out with both in terms of Solar City, but also the Tesla car. So the Tesla car, which is always presented as the next big thing in Silicon Valley after Steve Jobs' products actually would not have come about without the patient finance coming out of the Department of Energy. So Tesla got $465 million as a guaranteed loan. And we should repeat the word guaranteed. It means had Tesla been a failure, because there are many failures, the taxpayer would have picked up the bill. And the taxpayer did pick up the bill, for example, for Solyndra, which received $500 million, uh, in a guaranteed loan. And all people hear about are the failures, and the successes are always presented as a private sector success. And as soon as there's a failure, of course, it's a public sector mess up. Yes, it goes against the, the way we think about America, doesn't it? The land of naked capitalism. How on earth do they let public money into this arena at all, and yet it, it comes and it comes and it comes, and the people who run this are clever at knowing the mechanisms of not spotting winners, because it's earlier than that, isn't it? How do they do it? Two points here. First of all, there's the history, and then there's the current situation, and the current situation actually is no longer like the history. And the history was about this kind of funding, whether it's the NIH, the DARPA, the National Science Foundation funding, was actually not really politically motivated. So even under Reagan, you know, a free marketeer, this kind of financing went up. And after the financial crisis, with all the blame that went to the public sector, even though the financial crisis was caused by private sector debt, there was sort of a backlash against some of these funds. And so for the first time, the National Science Foundation, NASA itself, were facing lots of pressure to show economic value right away. But looking at the history, the point is that the US has often talked like Jefferson, but acted like Hamilton. So there's this whole issue of, you know, did they do that on purpose? almost as a conspiracy, so the rest of the world wouldn't copy. But this has always been mission-oriented financing. The missions used to be about the war, the Cold War, but more recently the missions were around health, which I've already talked about, but also energy. Health, though, this is long-term research being done, far longer, as I say, than any company could contemplate. Yes, but again, it's, it's a bit complicated because companies actually used to be a bit less risk-averse and more long-termist. What has happened in modern-day capitalism is something called financialization, where the profits of very large companies, and many of these are pharmaceutical companies, but also energy companies, are not being reinvested back into areas like research and development, but are being used simply to boost stock prices, for example, through the use of share buybacks. So you buy back your own shares, you boost your stock option, and surprise, surprise, you've boosted executive pay. And the question is why? Why is that? And often these companies will say, oh, well, there's no opportunities for investment. But then again, you look at where this is happening and just even health and energy, of course, there's huge opportunities. And the most obvious sign of an opportunity is actually the state continues to be financing radical innovation in both health and energy. And the question is, why don't we actually have a more symbiotic ecosystem between these public and private actors? So in compensation for having all this public support, the private sector should feel more need to reinvest those profits back into innovation.
How do you decide what the state should do and what should be left to private companies? First, of course, there is the issue of very capital-intensive, high-risk, high-uncertainty areas, which have always been, always in the history of capitalism, have always been first financed, if you want, by the state, which then increases the animal spirits of the business sector, which then steps in. A bit like longitude in Britain. Yes, exactly. But we should also be careful because it's not that there is a very clear-cut division of labor that you could say, fine, the state just does the early stuff, you know, upstream and then downstream in the development phase, the uh, businesses will step in. Actually, what we've always seen is a much more fuzzy boundary. And in fact, as I mentioned before, what we have had in places like Silicon Valley was the public sector through different types of organizations. I should repeat that. It's a decentralized network state, not top-down sort of big brother ministry doing everything. This has been a decentralized network of different public actors all across the whole chain even downstream. And so this is the point that, of course, there's a role for business. This is not about communism. This is not about saying business you know, is not important. It is important, but there's no clear-cut place where the state should step back. Because, in fact, even downstream, when finance as a short-termist as it is, we need long-term patient finance, even downstream financing the actual firms. In Israel, by the way, this happens through a public venture capital fund called Yosma. I know you would bring up Israel because it's the other sort of example where the state gets very, very involved in, uh, well, actually picking winners in Israel, doesn't it? Yes. Well, I don't like the word picking winners because it's so full of assumptions of whether it's about picking or somehow just sitting in the background financing, you know, infrastructure. Now, all the technologies in our iPhone that make the iPhone smart were picked. Now, Yosma itself, when it, it backs companies, it picks particular companies. However, what this means is you have a portfolio of different technologies, different companies that you're financing. You don't just pick one. So, you know, even in Germany with the energy vent policy, that was not just about offshore wind. There's a whole portfolio of different types of technologies, different types of firms that were being backed. And this brings us back to the concept of the mission. What's really important is we're not backing particular firms or sectors. You have a big problem, whether it's around energy or Unfortunately, in the past, it was often around war and the Cold War. But underneath that, you have many different homework problems. And these homework problems require both public and private, but the public part has to also back particular solutions to particular more concrete problems that might require backing particular technologies. You mentioned just now the agencies, the American agencies, the very different commissioners of research funding that sort of thing. That's important because that gives the projects uh, uh, an edge, doesn't it? A, a requirement, an outcome. Uh, DARPA, for example, putting all this money into uh, self-driving vehicles is because there is a key role to be done by them in the supply of uh, armaments and everything else to the front in a, in a war. Yes. So, so a very, very specific thing, not somebody saying, I think self-driving cars is a good idea, somebody saying, this can solve a problem for us, a very particular problem of our agency. Yes. So both DARPA, but also the Small Business Innovation Research Program, SBIR, which has, again, backed many very famous companies now that used to be small and needing that kind of finance, work through procurement policy, which is what you were talking about. So government purchasing solutions through the private sector for problems that government sets. But we shouldn't forget that that's not enough in itself. So the, the real trick in DARPA was also an organizational one. They would bring very high-level scientists in, they still do, for about four or five years through secondment. And these are very high-level people who come in and are civil servants for five years and think it's an honor 
to work for a mission-oriented agency which has such an active lead investor role. I often say that in Europe what we have is this constant talk about the need for the state to sort of step back and at best fix market failures. It's actually affecting who works in public institutions in Europe. And one of the secrets of the US, even recently, getting a Nobel Prize winning physicist to run their Department of Energy, has always been related to the fact that these agencies were mission oriented and they're extremely exciting to work in them. Where does that tradition come from? If you think of the famous quotes by Kennedy on how important it is to dream, there was that quote he had actually in the Irish Parliament in 1963 where he basically said, you know, if you can't dream, then forget it. There's no point of even having a government. That idea that actually what government is for is thinking big and doing things really that the private sector is not willing to do, but also to actively think about what kind of society we actually want to live in and then structure those organizations within the public sector to be able to tackle those missions has been a feature, interestingly enough, of the U.S. government, even though it then presents itself as a nation which is determined by market forces. Bring risk into this. Most governments are risk-averse. I wouldn't say that. I would say many people are risk-averse, many businesses are risk-averse, and in fact, yes, many public organizations are risk-averse. I think what you meant is that in many public organizations, you are your performance is measured by success. So, of course, you fear failure. Of course, this is also true in the private sector. Now, one of the big issues is that precisely because innovation requires lots of trial and error and error and error, if you want to succeed in innovation, you have to be willing to take on those errors and those failures. And the real question is, do we have a society and a citizenry that is willing to accept the number and level of failures that the public sector might have to experience in order to get those successes. So this is where I always argue that we should have a better marketing campaign in some governments, which actually allows people to realize that some of the famous successes, whether we're talking about the internet or the Tesla, or even Apple as a company, which would never have achieved what it did without all those smart technologies it got from the public sector, but even the public financing they got in their early stage, that story, that narrative isn't out there. And so if we had a better understanding of where wealth comes from, even with the success, then perhaps some of the failures will be easier to swallow. But that's not enough as well. We need to actually set this up as a proper portfolio so we don't just socialize the risks, we also socialize the rewards. Where else in the world does this happen? You've mentioned Israel, you've mentioned the USA. It depends what we mean by this. So there's different parts of this that happen in different places. But for example, today in Germany, I, I personally am very inspired by what's happening around green technology or the green, the energy vend policy they have. What I find inspiring about the policy is it's not just about green energy. What I mean by mission-oriented is they had a mission of zero carbon emission in Germany. And they really tackled that through different types of policies. China, by the way, is doing something very similar across all the sectors. This is not just about renewable energy. They greened their automotive industry. They're greening steel. And so this emphasis on repurpose, reuse, and recycle to lower the material content of steel is part of their green policy. You've added Germany and you mentioned China. Yes. Uh, any others? Well, first, let's just say what's happening in China. 1.7 trillion, that's 12 zeros, dollars worth of uh, funding for their green plan. And that includes, you know, again, not just renewable energy, but uh, green technologies in sectors like IT and new generation IT. They have a Chinese development bank. So it's a public bank, which is backing all sorts of green companies, many of which fail 
because again, this will entail failure. So there's some big Chinese solar companies which have failed, but they also have huge successes. And it is again a plan, not just around renewable energy, but greening all their sectors. And we shouldn't forget the same bank, by the way, backed Huawei. This is a very different sector. This is telecoms. Huawei, a telephone uh, company, is number one in the world. China is no longer going down this cheap labor route that it's sometimes useful for some to argue that China is just cheating and they are just competing on costs. Actually, no, they are innovating in almost every sector today. Are there limits to what the state ought to do? Well, first of all, the state is not always good. The state does all sorts of bad things, potentially, so we need the right kinds of uh, checks and balances in place. I mean, a lot uh, of this money is for military purposes. Uh, but uh, even when it's some not Some of the for... agencies are military agencies. But not only. Fracking, which, of course, there's lots of debate around fracking. Fracking technology was almost all funded, initially at least, by the Department of Energy in the U.S. They were absolutely leaders in all that, in those innovations, which have now enabled shale to, to, to bring down the price of oil massively. It's not so much was shale good or bad, fracking technology good or bad, it's where was the debate. My point is precisely because the state, when it wants to, can actually be really transformational and not just be fixing things but leading in new areas. Where is the debate? Where is the discussion? Where is the knowledge even that this process is happening? And perhaps by getting citizens also more involved and even recognizing the state's successes, we can also have a more open debate about, well, you know, what should we be investing in? What is the future? What would our, you know, what kind of society would our grandchildren like to live in instead of only bringing in the grandchildren as some conservatives do when we talk about having to pay back the debt? <laughs> yes, you're talking about something that's there but not in plain sight. Yes, and, and, and we will need it in the future. Innovation has in the history of capitalism, because we shouldn't forget that feudalism, which is a system that came before capitalism, was 500 years of inertia, no technological change. So capitalism has fundamentally been driven by technological change, and yet we haven't really had a very good understanding of that. But let me come back, sorry, just quickly to your question before about the state. As I've been saying, the structure of these state institutions matters. So we, we talked about decentralized, we talked about mission-oriented. So this is not just about saying, oh, just throw a lot of money at different areas. It's also about getting the right sorts of organizational capabilities and flexibility and willingness to take risks and becoming learning organizations. Because there's no point in saying trial and error and error and error if you're not learning from those errors. So how to welcome exploration and failure in public organizations and to turn them into learning organizations is just as important. And clever people coming in from outside, from the universities, from outside for a certain period of time and then being taken seriously and being given serious things to investigate or do. That's an important component of that. Yes, it's very important to make it honorable <laughs> to work in the public sector. Singapore, by the way, does this by paying civil servants about a million dollars a year. <laughs> Not many countries can do that. And so the other way to make it honorable, besides saying that your salary is a million dollars, is you know to, to create these mission-oriented institutions, which are also important for directing stimulus programs. The 800 billion stimulus program of Obama in 2009 was very much green directed initially. That's when ARPA-E was set up in 2009, which was the sister organization of DARPA. DARPA was in the Department of Defense, came out with the internet, ARPA-E in the Department of Energy. These sorts of organizations matter. Understanding who works in them, how they're structured, how they, again, welcome exploration is just as important as the amount of money that then they're able to use. Many thanks to Professor Mariana Mazzicato. 
from the University of Sussex who will be speaking at the Global Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna in November. I'm Peter Day. This is the Drucker Forum Report. More podcasts coming up soon.